Welcome back to Check Displeased, the podcast where we can't tell the difference between a cream pie and a meringue. This is very important, uh, primarily because I'm still thinking about Jack and Biddy on vacation in Maine near Martha Stewart's house, where there could be an evil clown alien from a terrible horror franchise uh, chasing them. Was he an alien? Yeah, he's an alien. It's a whole thing. Stephen King just likes to pile on concepts. He's not really good at minimalism or thoughtful writing. It's not what I would say. But this is not a a podcast about Stephen King, thank God. Yeah, Um, I've never read any Stephen King, so I don't know what I would have to contribute. I've read too much, and I regret most of it, frankly. So let's move on and talk about this comic, please. All right, this comic. We're going to talk about this comic. The comic in question is um, Check, Please, the webcomic that is now over, but not for us. Today we're discussing strip number 1.4, The House, which was originally posted to Ngozi's blog on July 3rd, 2013. Tomato, what happens in comic 1.4, The House? We open with Biddy once again addressing his vlog audience, telling them very excitedly that he found a kitchen he can use 24-7. Very important for midnight baking needs. Uh, we then flash over to the house um, on whose like rickety porch Shitty is standing and uh, addressing the frogs, the uninitiated of the Samuel hockey team. It's a bunch of fratty-ish looking dudes and one short blonde man, who is of course Biddy. Shitty sort of like does his grandstanding situation. He makes a little speech. The decisions you make in this house will be regretful but glorious. The alcohol you will drink will be cheap but plentiful. And the loss of virginity you may experience within these walls will range from reassuring to emotionally damaging, which is really something. Um, We enter the house. There's solo cups just laying around. Uh, Shitty is warning this group of young men about their future hazing. And Biddy, meanwhile, sneaks off to the kitchen, which is, of course, a disaster. More solo cups, a keg, dirty dishes. Truly disastrous. Biddy is, like, addressing the oven uh, very worriedly. He goes over to open a cabinet and finds that it is not full of baking supplies, but only full of sriracha, which is pretty great. We then zoom outside of the kitchen and we see uh, Ransom and Holster who are talking about also Holster instead of Holster, which I don't know if that's like an alternate arrangement or a typo, questionable. But Ransom is saying, what is that smell? It's like my aunt's house, but with more love and innocence. And Holster says, no offense, but compared to this, her house smells like a shithole. We then cut to Biddy who has a pie in his hands. Um, and Shitty says, well, we've only been here for five minutes. And that's the comic. I really want to guess that it is a typo, that it says Holzer and not Holster, because she's already done hockey shit with Ransom and Holster. And I think it was correct there. So I I literally think this is just a typo. I only bring that up because it is true that like people in sports in general and particularly in hockey where nicknames are like a thing he could have like multiple versions i think he um at one point in one of the extras and goes he says that he has like a a different nickname before they become ransom and holster and so 
I don't know if she's still playing around with it, but it's probably just a typo. I'm going to stop thinking about it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to open up the uh, Kickstarter book and see what it says in there. Yeah, actually, she uh, in there it's corrected. It says holster. Okay, so it's just a typo. Yeah, so I, I think online it, it is just a typo because it's it's been corrected like in at least the Kickstarter version year one print book. I feel like when he says, I bet no one's cooked anything but pop brownies in you, you poor thing. I feel like he's talking to the whole kitchen. Oh, really? So than the oven in particular. Well, the oven's like not even in the shot. Like there's no oven in there at all. I feel like he's just talking about the kitchen generally. He probably is. I guess I thought that he was like looking over at the oven, but the, the feeling is the same. He's like very concerned about the state of this poor room. But I think the oven, I mean, if memory serves, the oven is on like the wall and he's kind of facing into the middle of the room. I believe it. Yeah, I, I could see him thinking about it as the whole kitchen as well. He's very concerned about all things domesticity. This is the first time we get a blog post from Ngozi, kind of. When she originally posted this to her own blog, she tagged it, things I've never drawn before, Sri Racha, a keg, 19 solo cups, so many backwards caps, a Christmas tree smoking a joint, also oven mitts, Eric stress bakes, by the way. Interesting that she calls him Eric. This was actually just the tags on her original post. However, she made it into its own post when she transferred these early strips to the OMG Check Please Tumblr. And she tagged this with blog so that if you go to one of the more recent posts and you click on the tag for the blog, this is the first one that comes up or the last one that comes up, depending on whether or not you're looking at it in like chronological view. She didn't write a blog post in the sense that she would start to do a few comics from this one. As is the tradition with a lot of web comics, the creator makes kind of like commentary post. She didn't start doing that for, you know, a few strips from now. But she retroactively went back and kind of sorted this into the blog category. And I think it has the kind of tone that she would then adopt, right? Like the blog posts are always a little funny, a little cheeky, kind of talking to the audience. So uh, operating in the same genre as the rest of her blog posts, if you will. It is the case that within web comics, or at least the web comics that I read or have read in the past, um, the, the creator or the author will, will often basically make like a news post or a comment post or a blog post to basically create a bond with the audience or to create context for what they've drawn. Sometimes, you know, if, if it's a web comic that's particularly newsy this one is not web comics that update more frequently pick up on things that are like in the current games media or whatever the blog that she ends up implementing we'll talk about it more when we start getting those posts it's part of the process of turning check please into more of a web 
comic and sort of aligning it with that tradition rather than just kind of like bored recent college graduate making strips when she feels like it. Yeah, I agree. Ngozi is kind of aligning herself, I think, with a webcomic tradition, which even though she now talks about the comic in my experience anyway, as if she had a very specific plan the whole time. And I do think she starts to build a very specific plan shortly after this. And we can see that as the comic develops. It feels very episodic in this period. I would say now the more recent updates feels much more interested in kind of its overarching goals as a story rather than a kind of episodic or small arc comic like many web comics that update like three times a week are for example i do think that this feels episodic like if you took any one of the strips that we've read so far out of the sequence i don't believe that it would necessarily change the story as it stands at this point i mean we can see that with the removal of the ransom and holster strip Right. Yes. However, the world of the comic is gradually expanding. Every strip so far, we've gotten new characters, although, you know, the ones we get in this strip aren't super important, as we'll discuss later. Every strip, we've gotten a new setting. I don't know that we necessarily learn much new about Biddy because we already know that he bakes pies, but they are kind of expanding the universe of check plays. I think we do learn a little bit more about Biddy because we start to see him in relationship to this other group of people. And this is the first like running magical realism gag. Maybe not a huge expansion of his character, but I do think he's being expanded. I do think some new aspect of him or some other way of looking at him is being explored. You've mentioned in a couple episodes up to this point that she always claimed to have a plan. That was also my understanding, more or less. I got the idea that she started the first, I don't know, one, two, five strips just wanting to kind of like tell some funny jokes about hockey and see where it went. But by the time she started to build the universe out and post episode five or episode six, she had already begun to kind of like build out a story. And from there, she sort of had the trajectory of his four years at college and his happy ending planned out. But I was surprised recently when I read her blog post on the final strip of Check, Please, 4.26, where she writes, you know, with her school's alma mater still ringing in my ears, I started Check, Please. The comic's first panels emerged on an ancient laptop through a borrowed bamboo tablet and on a free drawing program. I had no plan. And I thought that was really interesting. Trying to do a close read of this, possibly it's vague, whether or not she means when she first started doodling Biddy, or if she's trying to distance herself from the idea that this was always supposed to be a coherent narrative. It's hard to tell. I mean, this is something that we'll explore as we further look at Ngozi's blog posts and the way that she writes about the comic and her habit of deleting things, rearranging things, 
revisiting history, repainting it, et cetera, which I actually think is really interesting, even if it's like not necessarily my interest as a creator. Thank goodness. No one's paying me to write about hockey men kissing. So I don't have to worry about that. But I do also think there's something interesting about, yeah, her revisiting of history and her kind of continuous reshaping of the way she wants people to interact with her art and with the expectations that they have for that art. Because I don't know how you can say I had no plan after what I seem to recall as years of saying, I know exactly how this is going. It's on a train track and no one can stop it. This is exactly how I wanted it to be. So I guess she must have to mean, I mean, I know when she, when she started, she actually started with images. If you look at the extras and go back to the very beginning, she started with images of Biddy and Shitty and said they were best friends. And that developed in like really interesting ways. So maybe she is talking about those first doodles. I hate those first doodles. I think they're so ugly. I think her style got so much better. Not that it's super consistent. I think she was always quite talented as a visual artist. And there's like a liveliness in certainly the beginning of Check Please, even as her style gets a little more sophisticated. I don't hate those early ones, though. I think they just look kind of doofusy. It makes me feel the same little rush of excitement that I felt when I first saw those doodles and was really into these characters and really excited about their friendship. I've seen Tumblr posts that are like, funniest moments in check, please. OMG, y'all, what a funny comic. And people sometimes say that they like laugh uproariously when they see this Sri Rasha thing. And to me, it's just kind of like people didn't have any particular proclivity for Sri Rasha when I was in college. It's just kind of like condiments. So uh, I graduated from undergrad the same year that Ngozi graduated from undergrad. So maybe our experiences were slightly aligned, although, as I've said, multiple times now. I feel weird that I keep talking about my undergrad. We went to very different institutions. The way that I read this is a funny exaggeration of a weird truth, which is that frat bros love hot sauce and specifically sriracha over other hot sauces and put them on like inappropriate foods, which you would not expect sriracha should go on. For example, getting very drunk and eating a pot brownie with sriracha on it. Bros, listen, I don't know how many frat parties you've been to, but yeah, they're horrible. It's not, it's not, listen, sometimes you're 20 and you're like, I'm going to go to this party that my friend's boyfriend is hosting at his disgusting house. Let me go see what's up. And you go there and there's like some guy dressed as Cinderella because it's Halloween and he's eating a pot brownie drenched in sriracha and you are 20 and don't drink and are like, well... This is a nightmare. What have I done? And then you go home on the bus and people are vomiting. It's terrible. So anyway, this is the kind of real life experience that I think that this strip is drawing from. And Sriracha specifically, I think there is sort of a fad now still for it. I'm not really sure why, but it's the same way that like bacon had a fad, you know, Sriracha kind of had like a little trendy fad. And so I think this is, I don't think this is uproariously funny or one of the funniest moments of Check Please, but I do think it's like a funny exaggeration when paired with Biddy's magical pie about the the sort of elastic nature of this reality. Like, of course, these disgusting dudes with their like empty solo cups thrown about the house have a cabinet, which is nothing but sriracha. Probably some of that sriracha has been there for like, you know, a million years because they're gross. Like, I think that's the joke. I guess when I saw this, I thought it was kind of funny just because it's kind of weird and it's sort of indicative of the fact that, oh, they don't have actual food in their pantry. It does seem they have this house with a kitchen in it and they're not actually using it very much. So I guess that's sort of what was like, oh, haha, like, you know, they're jocks who don't cook. 
And of course, that is what sort of distinguishes them from Biddy, or at least it's one of many things. I guess we should sort of talk about the characters. And I put Shitty at the top because I think there's the least to say about him. Do we learn anything about Shitty here? What's he up to? Let's see. Well, he's wearing sunglasses indoors. I think the joint on his shirt is the first hint of his joint-related personality. A fair amount of his characterization, again, I'm not sure whether this is in the actual comic or in extras or in fandom, but a fair amount of his characterization is based on like being into pot. Although, sidebar, so I live in California where pot is legal. I'm curious about people's thoughts about pot and also what kind of pot Biddy would smoke. I guess this is a terrible tangent. I'm sorry. Let's get back to what's the matter at hand. I think this is also the first time that we start to see him like crudeness that we saw him when he's like, don't be a cockhole or like you're not a cockhole or whatever with the kind of like grandiosity. So I think we'd learn a little bit about him. Crassness combined with grandiosity is a really accurate way to describe shitty. This guy who has a connection to the hockey culture. And also he's like highly performative. But of course we already knew that because we met him in comic two and he was doing similar things where he was crowding personal space. You look at the second panel in this strip, the way that his speech bubble sort of fills the entire panel, even though it doesn't block out the group of people he's talking to, it frames them entirely. And it also frames the entrance to the house, which he is also standing in. So you have an association of shitty with the house, And the house, which we'll get to, represents the hockey team. And he's quite a presence. He's very gregarious and has a very distinct, but also oddly familiar way of carrying and presenting himself. And I don't know if we're going to get another chance to talk too much. I mean, I'm sure we have plenty of time to talk about shitty, like we've got nothing else to do. However, I don't know if there's a comic that really like spotlights him in particular. So I may as well say it now. I know so many people like this. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, I feel like my world is a world of shitties. This totally performative, Effortlessly, but also somehow effort-laden coolness. Sunglasses indoors, they're aviators, combined with the mustache, combined with the hair. He almost seems kind of like he's out of the 70s. He's also wearing, you know, he's wearing like an ironic t-shirt. And it's not just there's that there's a joint on it. It's a Christmas tree smoking a joint, which is like absurd in a way that's like kind of funny but also not really and he's wearing cargo shorts which is interesting I think he I think he does get like kind of maybe more like slick or like fashionable looking later encapsulating a certain jockishness yeah it's a very specific kind of jock right it's like a very specific it's shitty that's how it is. I don't have a better way to describe what's going on, but it's it's not a jockishness that is stereotypical jockishness, but it is a very 
significant part of the real people I have met who are in sports or this sort of performative. I'm also really interested in his relationship with masculinity and actually like everyone in this comic's relationship to masculinity because it's a very specific relationship to masculinity. His performativity is really interesting when I'm thinking about it in comparison with Biddy's performativity in the first strip because it's very different. But they're both really gregarious. They're both using big body language. They're both like very impactful visually, but they're completely different. And so I guess I'm thinking kind of like, how does Shitty relate to this hockey culture that Ransom and Holster represent, right? And maybe Shitty does too, because it's Shitty's hair who's flo- who Sorry, I just uh, was thinking about at uh, one point, whatever, flow. So there is this kind of like weird sort of masculine trait of showing off and taking up a lot of space and calling a lot of attention to yourself through a particular set of affectations that are they're like they're like safely effeminate in in a way it's like in between pure masculinity and pure effeminacy there is like a kind of masculinity that is secure enough in its masculinity that it can be a little less rigid and shitty to me embodies a lot of that which is something I would be interested in keeping on exploring right is the way that different people seem to relate to these different gendered expectations particularly in the sport I think it's really interesting that you say secure because I agree. I think Shitty is in text fairly secure about his masculinity, his body, his sexuality. Like he seems much more at ease with certain things than uh, at least the characters who we spend more time exploring that sort of stuff with, which would mostly be Betty and then to some extent Jack. But there's also something about that willingness to break the rigidity, which is itself based in the careful balancing act of no one would ever assume this guy is not straight. Maybe it's a little different now in 2020, but certainly in 2013 when this was being, this was being written, that was my experience at that time as someone in college thinking about various ways of performing gender. Do you know what I mean? Academically, yes. Experientially, no. I think we had probably slightly different experiences. I also think that a lot of this is highly contextual. It's widely known and understood that hockey is a highly homophobic, highly heteromasculine sport where there are no out hockey players and there just like are no gay hockey players. So I think the characters or people on a hockey team, regardless of how gay coded they acted and or were drawn, would probably be given the benefit of the doubt, so to speak. It's a way you can sort of hide in place in a sense. Shitty has the freedom to act a little gaudy, doing it in a context where nobody would actually be gay. Biddy, even though he is 
as we've discussed a little, very gay-coded, is assumed by his teammates to be looking for a female date to a dance. We're, we're functioning in a space where the only option is straightness because straightness is the only option. And I guess when I was thinking about that sort of model of performative masculinity, which separates itself from rigidity. I wasn't only thinking about it in in the hockey context. And I do think that actually does a lot of the work. I think this is something that's being examined, genuinely examined during this period of the comic. I don't know if it continues to be examined. We can talk about that. But I think at this period, there really is something happening where hockey culture is being a little bit deconstructed or a little bit poked at in kind of an investigative way through jokes about hot sauce. Yeah, and not just jokes about hot sauce, but jokes about like, you're going to fuck, you're going to get shit-faced. Right, you're going to get emotionally damaged, ha-ha. Like, I'm really intrigued by that. I mean, I, I think this is also something we can talk about if we're thinking about sort of fandom conceptions of characters and how they've changed, right? Like, that's a really interesting line. You'll need to know it naked, blindfolded, and bitch-ass shit-faced. Like, that's needing to know the layout of the house. Bitch-ass. Like, that's a really specific term. Yeah, obviously, Shitty's not thinking about that. It's just, like, another crass thing to throw in the pile. But but I think it's really worth thinking about what language is, is thrown around in these early strip. Particularly Shitty, who is later uh, an, an emblem of sort of, like, soft jock understanding. Allyship. Right, exactly. Which is also something I'm very interested in exploring as we go forward. I think his arc is, like, Shitty's arc is actually a really fascinating one. Until a certain point. When he has no arc. So you wrote down, is it insane if we talk about Biddy's physicality? No, no. I think that's really, I think that's really important, actually. I, I really want to get into that. And my one sort of jumping off point is, again, if you look at panel number two, the one where Shitty is standing on the steps to the house and he's addressing the freshman, Biddy stands out, not just because he is shorts, although he is, he's coming up to like neck height on the other bros, some of whom are slouching. But because he has blonde hair, literally the rest of them are wearing backward baseball caps. They all kind of blend in. And they're all wearing these like muted neutral. Biddy is wearing a turquoise button-down, which we'll see him wearing a lot, actually. This is sort of his signature shirt. And then burnt orange-looking shorts. So he's not wearing anything that in and of itself is, like, particularly abnormal. He's dressed in a way that's pretty textbook preppy, in fact. An Oxford shirt is nothing unusual. But when you look at him against the backdrop of these other characters, he really does pop out at you as having a distinct and different sort of visual signature. I'm interested in that when I think about how this might be different if it were about other sports. For example, the Chads on the lacrosse team. The lacrosse players I've met in my life frequently wear pink shorts. That's like a thing, you know, because it's a preppy sport. It's got a particular set of associations with it. So I think it's interesting to think about also like different kinds of associations with different class associations with different sports, et cetera. Not, which is interesting because hockey is actually like 
a sport that's quite prohibitively expensive to play. So it's interesting to, to think about the kinds of things that are being telegraphed, I guess, by like all of these dudes. One of them has a forward facing baseball cap. Thank you. All oh, of these yes. dudes. Like, yeah, yeah. That guy with the red shirt has a forward facing. I believe that is actually wiki. Is that wiki? I think that's wiki. Which one's Ollie? The blue? Yeah. Huh. Wow. Well, that's where I admit I've never been able to tell which one is which and which they are among the faceless crowd of the non-core characters. My apologies, Ollie and Wiki. I hope your marriage is going well. But yeah, I mean, and I think this is also something to think about in terms of like body language too. When we see Biddy among everybody else, he's standing, hands hands at a side, pretty similar to everyone else. And then when he starts sneaking off to the kitchen, he, he gets more performative. And then when he's in the kitchen and he's like, oh God, his hands come up. He gets very performative, but in private, in a completely different way than Shitty, who's, being, who's performative all the time in front of everybody, taking up space, right? This is not what Biddy's doing. When we see him showing off the newly baked pie, he's actually kind of He's still being performative, but he's kind of cringing. He's kind of like, or I don't know how to describe his body language. He feels it's almost sheepish maybe. And I think that's interesting. I think that's worth thinking about at least. I'm not sure exactly what it shows. I don't have like a cohesive argument about that, but I'm interested in it. Uh, Yeah, there is a sort of subset of jock or of prep that is pastel colored. Some of how Biddy comes across here, at least in what he's wearing, is like, it's very Southern. You know, Southern prep is its own sort of sub-genre. You get a lot of sort of beachy colors and, you know, you're in a place where it's hot, it's sunny, you spend a lot of time outdoors. People do tend to be, on the whole, a bit more, you know, flamboyant and gesticular, just sort of like along the lines of this kind of louche, very socially showy culture. You know, there is this sort of Southern milieu that I think Biddy does kind of visually carry across many, many of his appearances. Whereas Northeastern or Upper Great Lakes hockey players probably have a very muted look. They spend a lot of time in the cold. I mean, I get you. I mean, I say this as someone who has never been to the South and is from the Northeast. That's part of why his look was unusual for me because those kinds of colors tend to only show up with a very specific subset of I would say New England prep, right? Which which is itself like a specific version of masculinity, which is not what Biddy appears to be performing. So that's why I'm kind of like interested in it, I guess. No, I, I remember seeing when I was first in the fandom, basically, you know, some discourse, not in a negative way, just literal back and forth about, you know, is Biddy a style icon? And then some people who had knowledge of this were basically like, no, he's basically like a textbook Southern prep. He looks like any dude, any preppy dude at like UGA would look. Maybe slightly more put together, but that also depends on sort of like the social context. I also would make the point, again, I don't believe it's in the comic comic, but a lot of the kind of extra paratextual stuff makes fun of Ransom for being super preppy and wearing things like 
salmon colored shorts and he's certainly like one of the one of the top chick wheelers in the comics so um one of the only really actually i think it's interesting that biddy is being visually marked as different and he stands out not just because you know we know we're we're building to a reveal that he's into men but also because he's a fish out of water in a broader sense he is southern he's not from this kind of context and so he looks like he is not an obvious fit with everybody else I think that actually this is one of Ngozi's strengths as an artist. I think she's she's really observant. The other major thing Biddy does here is he uh, bakes a pie. And we've made a little space to talk about magical realism in the comic. I'm very used to being in a, in a fandom where magical realism is, is basically the setting of the media. Um, you have a world that predominantly conforms to the norms and expectations of our world, but limited elements of the canon are imbued with elasticity that you could think of as magical in the sense that there is no rational explanation within the context of the story for why those things happen. So obviously at the end of this strip, Biddy bakes a pie with no access to materials, no access to tools. It takes him five minutes or less than five minutes apparently. He says, sometimes when I'm in kitchens, I just pies appear. And it is seemingly with little time spent, no ingredients, and probably little effort, he makes what is a delicious, delicious pie. And he apparently never makes a pie that's anything less than like exceptional and flawless. Part of this is just like, it's a joke, but I believe this is sort of the first instance where the boundaries of possibility within the comic are loosened a little bit. And like, again, I'm not saying that this is anything other than a joke. Benny's a fish out of water. This is his character flaw. It's, or maybe like, I don't know, just a character attribute. It's being drawn out and enunciated here for the point of having a punchline type beat. But it also imbues this comic overall with a dose of magical realism that allows the boundaries of what is possible to be inexplicably stretched beyond the constraints that apply to our universe. The one thing I'll say about this is that, as stated, I'm from the South Park fandom. And the South Park fandom is one in which the magical realism of the canon where there are aliens and magical creatures and barely explicable phenomena happening all over in nearly every episode, that stuff becomes the fodder for a lot of fan work. 
Part of what's fun about the South Park fandom is that it is a fandom that exists for a piece of media that resembles our own universe. So you can tell stories that are, you know, textually similar to your own experiences. But if you want to write crazy tropey things like mpreg or de-aging or all of this other shit that like makes fandom fun there's context for it within the actual story so it allows for like a very expansive very elastic type of fan experience check please has this magical realism capacity in it too but I feel like the fandom doesn't take that much advantage of it, possibly because it's a more limited element, possibly just because it's less cartoonish, it's slightly more grounded in reality, even with the magical attributes. I feel like Biddy is basically like a magical boy, and his special ability is that he can make pies appear out of nowhere. They're always perfect pies that are worth $9,000, apparently. And he just fucking has this ability to make people like him and have everything work out. And I don't think that's part of the magical reality, but you're seeing some of that exception in this comic here where he's stepping not only outside of the physical tour that he's on, in somebody else's fucking house, by the way. He just goes into the kitchen and starts baking pies. Yeah, I don't know. He, like, steps outside of the narrative, in a sense, and just starts, like, doing whatever. And everybody's just like, oh, okay. I mean, I agree. Well, here's the thing. So I have been in quite a few fandoms, most of them for uh, either low budget genre TV or high budget genre movies, because that's my bad taste. But even in fandoms I've been in that have relatively established realities that are similar to our sort of consensus reality, uh, I think this fandom is unusually unwilling to Expand rules for things like Mpreg or I don't know, uh, tentacle situations, like whatever that people wing fic. I don't know, whatever people are writing about these days. Um, I don't think people are writing wing fic these days. I don't think they are either, but listen. I spent some time in Supernatural. That just does something to you. Like, I, I can't answer for myself. Doesn't somebody in Supernatural have wings? Yeah, there's the angels. I don't know. Okay, let's move on. So I think there's like something interesting about Check Please fandom, which I definitely am interested in exploring throughout this podcast and also every time I talk to you anytime, um, which I, is the fandom sort of concept of the possibilities of the media. Because if we look at what actually happens in the comic, there's magical realism, no question, that he bakes these pies. I think this has to do with pacing, actually. I think his sort of like magical ability, which is not part of his magical boy powers, it's just like in the universe to have everything work out for him does not seem magical in the first half of the comic because the pacing is not particularly fast and therefore tensions rise and fall in different ways. And then those rules are, are changed in, the, in sort of the latter half of the comic. And that's when that magical sort of resolution to all conflict ability pops up 
for me as a reader, uh, which I think is worth thinking about in terms of how the fandom also conceives of what stories are able to be told. Um, I think it might be worth at some point looking at the kinds of stories that were being told during this period in the fandom, which weren't very many stories and the kind of stories that then became more popular later. I don't know. But, uh, but, but at this time we have the magical pies in the extras. We have the ghosts who are like, who think ransom is really cute. Um, we have John Johnson, like we have all of these sort of reality stretching or fourth wall breaking elements, but the stories that people tell, and I think this becomes more crystallized as the comic becomes more and more lauded for its representation, which I think is a really important word when we like when I'm thinking about the way that this comic is talked about of queer characters, queer relationships, happy gay rom-com, whatever. Um, And I think in that vein, the point of the, maybe I'm just like pontificating uselessly, but I think there's something happening in the stories people tell within this fandom that are about, unless you're me uh, or you, or a couple other people that are about exploring what it means to be in our consensus reality without conflict, not thinking about this kind of reality bending possibility, Um, not thinking about how Biddy is able to bake this pie, but instead that he bakes the pie and everyone likes it. And therefore he's like a good gay character, right? Like the magical part sort of gets erased in service of this other, I don't know how to articulate this, of this other reality there where homophobia doesn't exist, etc. Looking at AO3 is a bit of a flawed metric, and I do want to acknowledge that people delete stories, people archive stories, people um, continually update stories so that they sort of lose their place in the posting order. But to give us some more context for how things are going fanishly, the first story in the check please tag on AO3 is posted in October 2013. So that's a couple months down the line from this. And then the next one's not posted until December. And then only a few kind of like trickle in over the first year of the comic. Things don't really pick up until 2014. However, the first several stories in the tag, some of which are by the same people, are about the ghosts and about Johnson. It seems like the things that got people interested in the first place were some of these side elements, or at least these kind of like magical realism elements seem maybe more sewn into the general culture of the comic. But of course, like I said, this is a really sort of flawed way to view this because it's only one website. You can only see a limited number of things. There's no textual rationale for why all of these things are being posted. There was also a lot of Twitter fic and a lot of like not fic on Tumblr, as I recall. Um, Yeah, but then the flaw with that is like, how do you even find that? Like, how would I even find somebody's bullet point fic on Tumblr from 2013? You can't. I mean, you can't. This is why people should archive things on AO3 if you ask me, an obsessive archivist. I also should note that although I was reading the comic at this time, I was not really in fandom. I was not reading fanfic for it until after year two or I was paying attention to the fandom, but I wasn't paying attention to the fic. My 
timeline of things is also not complete. And also I have a bad memory, so that doesn't help either. I think there's something about the way that the fandom saw itself and saw the role of the comic, like to continue my conspiracy theory about hockey RPF, maybe as an extension of hockey RPF or adjacent to hockey RPF or something to something that stands on its own that is like queer representation for all people. I think that does shift the kind of stories that people feel able to tell. Whereas even though South Park, as you mentioned somewhere, does have more canon gay couples than check, please. No one's looking to South Park to act as sort of like the representation. And maybe that loosens things up in the fandom, or maybe it makes people feel different kinds of responsibilities about the stories that they're telling. I don't know. South Park is a completely different podcast. And I will also make one day. People obviously shouldn't look to South Park as representation, but yeah, I don't know. I would argue that they probably shouldn't look to this for representation either. I don't think they should, but I think that that happens. How about canon gay characters, Ollie and Ricky? Tell me, okay, I don't have, here's the deal. Here's what I know about Ollie and Wiki. They exist. I don't know which one is which. Uh, and neither does Biddy, is my firm belief. They have a chandelier in the attic, according to some extra that was published like a few days ago. And uh, they're married. That's all I know. Can you tell me more about Ollie and Wiki? Well, I can't really, because that's basically what there is. You know, there are these two characters who are introduced in the lineup of freshmen in panel two here, the frogs, that just means freshmen. That's like jockey slang for freshmen. They're not like particularly distinctive looking. Ollie has what looks like kind of bags under his eyes. Wiki has sort of like a mullety kind of situation going on, but he looks slightly more fresh-faced and normal. And um, the only reason I know that is because, yeah, there was an extra posted during the final week of Check, Please, where it was distinguished definitively. They get pulled out as kind of like recurring characters, I guess. Their names are not used in this strip, by the way. So it's not like they're codified here forever. In the fourth panel where Shitty is saying, try to remember the layout of the house because you'll need it for Hazapalooza, they are bumping fists and saying, Swassum. So at this point, they're basically just like representative of hockey bros. They have sort of distinct or like character designy enough looking faces that it got replicated elsewhere. And they are sort of stuck into panels a couple times a year in this comic. Biddy does tweet about them like on occasion, not in any way that's like interesting or formative. And of course, they play literally no role in the story. I don't know that it's super important to say much more about them. Wish it was because I may or may not have mentioned that I fucking decided to write a fanfic about them. So anything other than nothing would be helpful in that regard. We don't learn anything about these characters. I guess if you were looking at the extras and collating everything, you could add in that when they move into the house their senior year, they take over the attic from Holster and Ransom. 
There is one Ask a Welly panel where they appear to have a single bed rather than double beds and a chandelier. There's a final Ask a Welly about them where, yes, apparently they literally get married right after college and go to a honeymoon in New Zealand and apparently become consultants like Ransom and Holster or Holzer before them. That's it. That's basically everything about Ollie and Wiggy. And I feel like now is not a good time to talk about what does it mean that on like the final afternoon of the canon ever, you find out that, oh, they actually were gay the whole time. But I think that's an interesting to pick up maybe when we get there a year from now in our lives. I think it's just interesting. I think this is the beginning of a pattern that I'm interested in in thinking about where Ngozi appears to have very complete ideas about characters, which she will reference. Uh, And we can look at this in future blog posts and so on. I just kind of want to like throw this idea out, but that those ideas do not show up in canon. That appears to be the case for Ali and Wiki who show up in canon more than most. And so I'm just kind of interested in continuing to look at the relationship between what we think we know. It's interesting to think about what what does it mean to know a character in this canon? Like how much do you have to know about a character before the fandom latches on, before we care about them? Like I haven't spent very much time with with Shitty or Ransom and Holster or I don't like any time with Jack. I actually at this point care more about Ransom and Holster than I do about Jack, which is like kind of interesting. Well, you haven't seen Jack. I mean, Jack blended into the background in his appearance in The Coaches. And he was only introduced for like one panel where he was really visible in The Boys. So why would you care about Jack at this point? So I think that's just interesting to pay attention to. But interesting that he's not in this comic. We later find out that he lives at the house. He's apparently not part of the life of the team. I guess that's what you could extrapolate from this. Again, he's not really part of like the hockey culture. He loves hockey so much, but for him, it's like, you know, he's not part of the team. You'd think if he lives in the house and he's also the captain, he'd be the person giving the house tour, maybe? But also, you know, yeah, it's like you'd Maybe you wouldn't even know unless you like know that, you know, he's kind of lurking in the background of the story. You maybe wouldn't even notice that he's like not in this strip because he just hasn't like done anything yet. Make an impression. Whereas Shitty's been like yelling in almost every strip or he's been the focus of the strip as with Flo. Yeah. I mean, I remember I didn't, I was just like, oh, asshole, cool. And then like moved on from Jack when I first started reading the comic. And then well, I mean, so we're in the house. Is it insane that like only five people live in this house, but it's supposed to be the hangout for the whole hockey team, which has like more than 20 guys on it? I don't think that it is. That's how frat houses work. Is it? Like, I thought more people lived in a frat house. It depends on the house and how many people can it can house. Probably more usually than five, because normally people don't get their own rooms. But yeah, I think it's pretty typical. This is my experience of like being in frat houses is that it would be certain people who lived in the house and then other people would live in dorms or off campus. And But that would be the sort of like home of the community. 
But then again, this isn't really like a frat. It's a hockey team. I don't think that this house is owned as part of a wider organization. I think it's probably just a couple guys informally one year decided, oh, it would be cool if we got a house and lived together. And then the tradition of there being Das House has been like inherited over several generations of the hockey team. Whereas Greek life in the U.S. is like an actual organization. And I think if you want to be like a frat house, you have to have like a charter and be a part of a larger organization where you're like, you know, evaluated in some formal sense. Whereas I don't think this is the NCAA Division One hockey team has purchased a house for its members. I think it's just like the sort of informal thing that has become the, you know, heart of the hockey team culture. Just a brief note about frat houses that I'm used to. It's usually like a four bedroom house that you stuff four to eight dudes in and then like the rest of the house hangs out there. Um, Not purpose built. In my experience, they're usually just old houses that are like around the part of town where the university is. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think probably what happens is that like every year the lease comes up and you just pass it on to whoever you give your dibs to and off you go, which is also like pretty common, I think, for for people who live off campus and in the Northeast. I'm sure in other places, too. I feel like the house becomes in a lot of ways sort of like the heart of the setting. The narrative begins to sort of peel away from this setting. But for the first couple years of the comic... A lot of it really happens in this location, and this is our first introduction to it. The mood of the house, gross, fratty, but also like convivial and jocular is very much the mood of the comic. I agree. I think that the settings and sort of the casual quality of the setting, which Shitty is definitely framing with his like ridiculous gestures and rampant use of curse words. It's very much about camaraderie. I mean, I think like the the centrality of the house and the fact that the house is the heart of this team, not the home of one specific person, is really telling about the kind of story that's being told right now, which again, I think is not, it's about Biddy. Biddy's the central character, but I don't think it's about Biddy and one other person or Biddy and his role within the hockey team. I think right now it's very much about who are the people of this hockey team? What does that look like? You know, Biddy might be our our door in, but it's not just about him. And I think the fact that the house is such a central place really speaks to that. Yeah, I don't really have anything to say about the the pacing and the humor other than that. Yeah, there's like a beat at the end. It's all sort of building to the punchline of Biddy baked a pie and then Shitty is like, oh, we've only been here for five minutes. And that's basically like the punchline at the end of the comic and then it's over. I'm interested in thinking about does the comic stay interested in punchlines? Because it certainly is right now. We've seen like several jokes where the whole comic's leading up to a beat. There are strips in this comic that do end on a punchline, and then there are some that are a little bit more affirmative at the ending. And then there's some that are kind of like, there is a punch at the end, but it's not, or like a punchline, but it's not a joke. It's like a, like a gut punch almost. Yeah, I guess I'm just interested in keeping an eye on the pacing of the individual strips and of the piece overall. 
I, I don't know. I still, I'm trying to work out my own thoughts about it. That's why I'll probably keep bringing it up because I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I think Ngozi is doing, whether it's purposeful or not, all that stuff. I fucking hate Biddy and his stupid pies. I hate that his pies are good. I hate that his pies appear. I don't think it adds anything to like his character or rather I think it's like really weak characterization. I don't actually think pies are hard to make. Um, there are a lot, I'm, I'm a, I'm a pretty, I don't know, competent baker. And there's a lot of things that I really, really struggle with. There are a lot of things that I, it has taken me a lot of work to execute a not very good loaf of like yeast bread, like on the order of years. However, fucking pies are the easiest thing to make. And the difference between an okay pie and an exemplary pie is barely anything. Fruit pies, which is what Biddy seems to predominantly make, have so much less to do with the skill of the baker and so much more to do with like the quality of the fruit that it's just like, I hate this. I know it's a big part of this comic. And a lot of it is like what's interesting to me about writing fic about it. It's like, oh, I, I understand baking and I understand food. That's something I can write about. Then I'd say <laughs> this particular strip, it's like, it's not doing anything plot-wise. It's just sort of like scene setting. We need to get to the house. We need to learn a little bit more about, you know, Biddy makes perfect pies Eventually, Biddy's going to move into the house. He's going to, you know, mark the house and the people who live in it with his personality will see more strips in the house and how it becomes a sort of avatar for both the culture of the team, the culture of the comic and, you know, a, a venue in which characterization is executed. I don't know, in terms of thinking about how the rest of the story of Check Please plays out, I this all sort of feels like information that just had to like go in here. I guess the one thing we didn't touch on is uh, there's two other guys on the uh, Taddy Tour who are never really shown again. And in fact, because we've all just seen like, you know, the scenes of Biddy's graduation and people kissing the ice, this is the class of 2017. There should be two other guys on uh, the Samwell hockey team who graduate in 2017. And after this trip, they just like disappear. Maybe they got caught kissing and they got kicked off. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's what happened. All five frogs that year. Wow. Like how many stupid characters do you really want to keep track of? At this point, like the cast will explode. It will explode to a point where it's just like, I don't care about most of these people. But at this point, the cast is pretty reined in. You don't necessarily want to have to keep track of all these people. Can't even keep track of Ollie and Wiki. And like, you know, that's only two. So... It's fine. I'm not saying it in like a critical way necessarily. I'm just noting that apparently these two extra people were in Biddy's year and then they just got cut from the team, let's say. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't feel the same way that I don't feel the same like antipathy that you feel about Biddy's pie situation. I would call myself also a somewhat competent baker. I really like to bake bread. I like to bake pie. I struggle with cake. This is like my life. I also love pie, but I've never eaten 
listen, I've never eaten a pie that like, that blew my mind open. And I, and I like pie. I think that for me, it's just a, it's like a fun little gag. It, it doesn't bother me particularly. And I am really interested in this version of Biddy, which I have to admit, I have no idea if it exists outside of my head. I don't know whether this Biddy exists on the page. This is something I'm interested in looking at. But Biddy's, I mean, I think, I think my feeling about Biddy comes from what's on the page, but I don't know if it's like just based on what's on the page, right? But I think there's something really interesting about Biddy constantly baking pies and like this role of domesticity that he continuously and like approaches and often just like shoves on other people, whether like, like, listen, pie's great, but do these dudes want a pie? I don't know. None of them were like, please, Biddy, take me and give me a pie. No one was like asking him to take care of them, but this is something that he does again and again. And so I think there's something really interesting there. Um, I also don't mind a stupid gag. Like I have bad taste and think stupid things are fun. I don't mind that aspect of Biddy's character. I do, however, get frustrated, I think, by a reading that does not take the complexity of what it means to continuously adopt a caretaking role, whether or not the people around you want you to take that role. Um, when it's just simply accepted as Biddy is a ray of sunshine who makes beautiful pies and is perfect, which I think the comic at times also adopts. I think when we get into like year three, this will speed to the forefront of some of our conversations. I feel like I'm constantly looking ahead and uh, my apologies. Well, I mean, me too. I think that's part of what we're doing here. We're rereading the comic to, yes, assess what it is as it's going on. But now that the comic is completed, we're thinking of it as part of like a whole. And we can no longer read these strips. In my case, I don't know if I could have ever read these strips without thinking about what happens later in the comic. Like when I started reading the comic, I knew that Jack and Biddy kissed. The future of the comic is part of the comic, at least to me. And that's something that I think you and I don't have in common because you started reading I guess around this time. And I didn't start reading until, you know, Check Please had already become Check Please. I'm still having fun. I like find the little stupid frat boy like one-liners to be casual in a way that I no longer associate with like the sort of fever dream nightmare anxiety attack I get every time I think about reading check please so that's really nice all right well then um I don't have anything more to add about this trip so I think we'll sign off and we will see you back here for episode our sixth episode where we will cover hockey shit number two the verb to chirp so join us next time if you have any feelings on what kind of pot Biddy smokes, uh, let us know in the comments. Goodbye. Bye, tomato. Bye.